This morning we do recognize and acknowledge that everything we have, everything that we experience comes from the hand of God. And we're thankful that God remembered humanity in his creation. And this morning as we think about living in God's world, we recognize that God is the Lord, God is in control, and God is king. Yet we recognize that doesn't mean, thing, mean things are simple. Things are quite complicated in our Father's world. And this morning what we're going to do is a little bit different. Is we're going to provide the opportunity to kind of talk about navigating the waters of living in the Father's world. Recognizing that all of us come from different places, we're in different spots in the world, and we're going through different experiences in the world. And so this morning's message is, is quite different in the sense that you guide this morning's message. And so we're going to get to that in just a minute. We're going to start here in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. Right at the end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is finishing up a big block of teaching that he's been giving a crowd and his followers. And his final words in this sermon, Matthew 7, 24. Matthew 7, 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to worship. We ask now that as we enter into a conversation this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would reside. Specifically, we ask now that your spirit would come and prompt people to share a question that they're wrestling with this morning. We pray that your spirit would guide the answer. We pray that your spirit would guide our response and our understanding. So we ask now, God, that you would have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think about living in the world, we recognize that all of us come from different places. Therefore, all of us are wrestling with different questions. All of us are different places on the faith journey. Some of us have been in church our whole life. Some of us have been in church for 15 or 10 years. Some of us know all the Old Testament stories about Joseph and Abraham. Some of us just know that God wants to be in a relationship with us, and we know Jesus. We don't know lots of these other characters. And so we find ourselves on different places in the journey. And so this morning, I wanted to provide the opportunity, recognizing that we're all in different places, that sometimes it's helpful to be able to say, this is where I'm at, and it's a question I'm wrestling with right now. And so what I want to do this morning is the ushers are going to be passing out some note cards to you this morning, and we're going to just take a moment, going to stop our service basically right now and provide an opportunity for you to ask a question. You can uh, do that, or there's going to be a phone number on the screen, actually. You don't have to call in, but you can text a question in, text 151989 and the message to the phone number 22333, or you can go online at that address as well. So you can ask your questions online or via the note card. It's all anonymous. But it's an opportunity for you to say, hey, I'm wrestling with this, and I would just like some guidance on it. Or, you know what? I've never understood why, da-da-da-da-da. Help me understand. And so then we're just going to open up, and we'll see what questions we get to this morning. So I'm going to stop talking for like a minute. If you don't have a question, just take that note card and write down the alphabet to keep yourself busy for a little while. Okay? So let's take a moment right now, text in a question or write a question on the, on the note card. Let's ready, Go.
I'm going to dig in with the questions that are coming in online, and then the ushers will bring to me the questions that are in the note cards. Again, if you have a question as we're thinking here, just text text that in. It's going to jump right in. And again, we're going to be kind of all over the map today because I got no control, but that's the point. All of us are all over the map on where we're at and what we're wrestling with this morning. I'm going to start with uh, question number one. It says this, does someone who has not been introduced to the Word of God or had the opportunity to accept Christ suffer the same eternity as someone who has? If I'm understanding this correctly, basically asking if someone who's never heard about Jesus dies, do they face the same eternal punishment as someone who has heard about Jesus and rejected Jesus? It's a light question to begin with this morning. This is going to sound like a politically correct answer, and it's, and it's not that at all. Two things I want to encourage you to think about in this question. The first is this. We teach that the Bible is the ultimate authority in all things, and that the Bible is the revealed will of God. Yet we teach at the same time that the Bible does not make everything known. And so our understanding of the scriptures is that the Bible is what God has revealed, but there's plenty in which God has kept hidden. And so there's times when we're asked, to trust in the hiddenness of God. So I just want to share that out front. That, that could probably apply to a lot of questions today, and that's not an out at all. But that's a, a way in which we understand the, the Bible. So therefore, we don't have to defend God. We don't have to make things logically work. We understand that God hasn't made everything known. Second thing when thinking about this question is this. There is no salvation. The Bible is crystal clear on this. Jesus says it himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. It says in other places in the New Testament about no one will be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. There will be no one in heaven. There will be no one at the resurrection for eternity that does not claim the name of Jesus Christ. Period. Now where it gets really complex is where someone hasn't had the opportunity to respond or speak the name of Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly how that works. Let me give you a couple of different perspectives on it, and then I'll just share my personal thought. Number one is the Catholic Church has had this teaching around purgatory. I won't go into all of that. But actually, the Catholic Church isn't completely in the wild on this item. It's not like they woke up one night and said, hey, let's invent something crazy. This concept did come a little bit from the Old Testament that there was this holding place for the dead. The challenge with the Catholic understanding of purgatory is that they didn't take into account the resurrection of Jesus and the new promises of Jesus that you enter into the presence of God at death in some mysterious way. And so it's, it's not a, a good understanding taking into account the New Testament and the apostles, but it is a good understanding in the sense of before Christ came, there was this sense of a holding place. Some would contend that when a person dies, they go to, as the Psalms would refer to, Sheol or a place of death. And in that place of death, there's going to be an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so some teach that this is why we say Jesus descended into hell where the prisoners were, is that he will actually be present and proclaim a message. So that's, that's one way people understand that and, and, and connect those dots. Another way that people understand it is that God is graceful and that people may not know the name of Jesus Christ, but what they might know is that they weren't perfect. And so you don't have to know Jesus to cry out to a creator or to cry out to a higher being saying, I need you. So for example, 
you can talk to a non-Christian, especially in our culture, and they're going to probably admit that what? They're not perfect. Even if they don't believe in God, they're going to say, I haven't even lived up to my own standards, let alone the standards of society and culture. And so some people would teach is that, does a person recognize that? And do they cry out for mercy to the creator? They may not be able to articulate that name of Jesus, that's the mercy that's been given, but they cry out for mercy. So that's a second way. A third way that people look at it is that God is graceful, and through the atonement, the blood of Jesus covered those who heard the gospel and those who didn't hear the gospel, and they're welcomed into eternity. I have a real challenge with that third one, that the atonement of Jesus just covers automatically everyone that did not hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, one, it would just go against the tone of the New Testament, whereas there's this just anxiety and constant pressure to spread the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere. If everyone who was saved automatically that didn't hear about Jesus, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been like, I'm going to die for this. Because he would have been like, whether I go there or not, they're saved. But he's literally saying, I wanna, I'm willing to die for this. And you should be willing to die for this as well. Why? He's got to have an understanding that if they don't hear the gospel, it's not good. And so we've got to have that tension, hold on to that tension. So I, I firmly believe that in, there's no salvation outside of Christ. There is going to be an opportunity. I don't know exactly how this works or when it comes, but there's going to be an opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ when you ask for mercy. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's a quick seminary 101 on that uh, question. But that's a really difficult question. Here's what Martin Luther, I'll finish with this. Martin Luther would say this. If you're concerned about it, do something about it. So if you're like, well, what happens to those people? Well, get some money, pray, go yourself, do something about it. Number, uh, number two, how do we speak God's truth in love? Ephesians chapter 4 talks about speaking God's truth in, in love. So how do we speak God's truth in love? Great, great question that I think all of us wrestle on a regular basis with. I'm going to share two quick thoughts on this. How do we speak God's truth in love? First is this. We are really bad in our culture at maintaining relationships in the midst of having to have a hard word. So one of the primary ways that we can speak God's truth in love is this. Is say that our relationship does not depend upon your response to what I'm going to say. So for example, if you've got to share a hard truth with your son or your daughter about something that's going on, or a mom or a dad, or, or whoever it might be. If they disagree with what you're sharing with them, that doesn't mean that you automatically stop coming to family gatherings. We, we're really bad at this. So what happens is it becomes awkward, right? And so we start treating each other differently automatically. We don't call as much, we don't text as much, we don't have them over for dinner really very often anymore. We've got to become more comfortable saying, you know what, God's asked me to be a representative. Not everybody's going to accept it, but I've got to be confident enough and content enough in God that I'm going to stay in that relationship. So that's number one, is speak truth. The number way you can do that is stay in relationship. Second thing about speaking God's truth in love of how we can, how we can do that is around them, if you're really practical here for a second is in the use of absolutes. And so if you're speaking a difficult word to someone and use absolutes like you always, 
are you never. Or you use absolutes about yourself by saying, well, I've never anything like that. The moment we use absolutes, it, it, the walls and the defenses go up automatically, right? Because everybody can find an out at least at some point. At one time, the person was at least nice. Or at one time, the person didn't would do whatever. And so don't use absolutes when sharing. So if you're giving a hard word to someone, first express something about yourself, not in absolute language. But don't say anything absolute about them either. The only absolute is the message that you're sharing. So for example, if the absolute is something about God's word about um, lying, which I'm the minor example, lying, big deal. You're lying about something. God says lying is wrong. There's no wiggle room for, well, I had to lie because we got a better business deal. That No, lying is wrong. That's, that's an absolute. But I want to be careful how I share that with someone about, well, I've, I would have never done that in a business deal, and I can't believe you have done that or you're always doing that. Right there, emotions get higher and da-da-da-da-da. So just a little practical thought for you and when you're talking with somebody about hard language. Number one, maintain relationship. Number two, be careful in using absolutes. Okay. Okay, this is, I'm just going to work down the list, otherwise I'm going to be... Um, how do we set up healthy boundaries while still showing the love of Jesus Christ? How do we set up healthy boundaries while still showing the love of Jesus Christ? I, I don't know exactly what this is aiming at. Also, I'll take it a couple of different directions. Um, oftentimes, when we're trying to share God's love of helping someone, so I'm going to go that route. If someone's in need of some help, let's call it financial, emotional, whatever it might be. In the midst of helping that person, which God commands us to do, that person can become what? Dependent upon us. Well, that's not good either. Because our goal is not that they're dependent upon us, but they're dependent upon God. And so what can happen is when you're helping someone, that person that you're helping can what? Basically overtake your whole life with constant requests, constant needs. And all of a sudden, you can't meet those needs or all of those requests. And so, again, a lot of times it's either black or white. Just like, oh, can't help anymore. Well, let me encourage a couple of practical things again on this. Number one is this. When we're helping someone, we need to get out of an individualistic mindset. we got to think of it as this, a team approach. So you know someone who's struggling or someone's coming to you who is struggling? Think in threes. You need to have three people pouring into this one person. It takes, a fam- it takes three families to help one family. Through. Let me just give a very pre- perfect example for the city of Sioux Falls. The city of Sioux Falls has been blessed with a lot of immigrants and refugees. Lutheran Social Services has a great mentoring program for immigrants and refugees. And as I've talked to a lot of mentoring families, I've heard one thing over and over again. This family just latches on to us, and we just can't do it ourselves. There's a lot of people that I've talked to have said, you know what? We need to have three families actually mentor one family. And what it does, it provides encouragement and it provides energy so that one is down, there is another who's up and can provide encouragement. So number one thing I think encourage you to do is think in a team approach. Secondly, setting healthy boundaries. I want to ask you a question. What are your boundaries? Might seem kind of obvious. But some of us have perceived boundaries that are not actually boundaries that God has for us. So I'll give you an example. You're, you're ministering to a difficult person. 
and you're trying to build a relationship with them, one of the perceived boundaries is what? Well, keep them away from my family. Okay, that's not a boundary in God's word, that our family should actually be open to that person. And so family Thanksgiving comes along, and you have that person with you at family Thanksgiving. Now, a lot of people culturally like, that's kind of odd. That's what Christianity is. It's kind of odd. And so I'd encourage you to think about your boundaries and make sure your boundaries are truly God-honoring and about maintaining health so that you can pour out rather than maintaining comfort. At the end of the day, most of the time when I talk to people, the boundaries we have are about maintaining comfort, not maintaining health. So just think about it that way. Hopefully that's helpful in a, in a couple of different things. I'll take a couple here from the note card. Um, question, oh boy. Are we, are we experiencing the birth pangs of the return of Christ? Hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, etc. Great question. Great question. Um, the Bible talks, Jesus himself talks about that when he returns or right before he returns, things are going to get really, really rough. I'll give you my personal opinion and I'll give a wide, I hope my personal opinion is always saturated in God's word. So I'll give you that perspective and then I'll give you somebody else's perspective. My understanding of God's word is that the day, since the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, so in Acts chapter 1, he said, since that day, there's been hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, and it's been really bad. I honestly don't believe it's any worse today than it was 50 years ago. Now, you might, oh, pastor, it's horrible out there. It's worse in America today than it was 50 years ago. America is a sliver in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And so we have to be really careful that we do not elevate the tribulation of America into the tribulation of the world. And we, so we say, well, it's really bad right now. Compared to World War II, to our grandparents, and to the individuals who gave their lives in the midst of that, the majority of us have experienced nothing. And, and so tribulation is an extremely relative term. So I want to encourage you on this, is that God does say it's going to be bad before he returns. My understanding of God's word is it's been bad since the day he's left, and it's going to be that way, basically what it is right now until Jesus returns. So my understanding is that Jesus could return tonight, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. He could return 10 years from now. Wouldn't be surprised at all. I believe we're in that period of time right now. He could have returned 70 years ago, and it shouldn't have surprised us then either. So that's one way of looking at it, my understanding. Another understanding, though, that is very common in America, taught in a variety of places, is that it is bad right now, and we're encroaching very close on the return of Jesus Christ. And let me share what they would share. They would share this, is that technology has created a global environment like we have not seen. And so there's some stuff in Revelation about a global environment. Again, it's extremely hard to interpret, but there is some stuff in Revelation about a global environment. The moment that happens is, boom, that's when Jesus can return. So there's legitimacy to that thought. So that's one of the big things. The second piece of why that is now is that the evangelization, what I mean by that is the message of Jesus is in far more places around the world today than it was 50 or 70 years ago. So the number of unreached people groups, people that have never heard the name of Jesus, there's still, sadly, a lot. 
but compared to 50 or 70 years ago, that has really shrunk. So some people would say that God has accomplished what he has promised and has now opened the possibility because of globalism and the tribulation and because evangelism has taken place, his return is imminent. So hopefully that helpful, two different perspectives on how to understand the return of uh, Jesus Christ. Why is it hard to get people to listen how Jesus is so great? Why is it so hard to get people to listen how Jesus is so great? Great question that should hopefully be on all of our minds because all of us have a desire to talk to others about Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that people are going to have a really hard time seeing that Jesus is great because our hearts are blinded, our hearts are so hard. And this is a really hard one to understand is that it's our own sin, it's our own wrongdoing that blinds us to the greatness of God. So we can present it in any way that we want, and it doesn't matter. We're so hard to it. That's why the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is not just optional, but is necessary for someone to profess faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's got to open that heart. So that's got to keep that in mind. Second thing we've got to keep in mind, one of the main reasons in our culture that it's so hard to make people know that Jesus is great is that we've got it pretty great. I don't need Jesus. <laughs> I, I can work this next week. I can take my kids to whatever this next week. I can travel to Omaha next weekend. Life is good. I, I don't need Jesus. And then what it is, I look at Christian lives and I go, why would I want Jesus? They're a mess. And then one step further, I'd look at the church and I'd go, why would I want to be involved in that? And so just very practically speaking, there's no need for Jesus because, one, most people are not thinking about death every single day. Just, it does not work. Psychologically, emotionally, we suppress that, push that to the side. Probably is somewhat of a healthy thing. We don't think about death every day. The second piece of it is this, though. We've created a God who is completely welcoming so that there is eternity for every, kind of goes back to the very first question we had, is that when you believe everyone's going to be in heaven, well, that automatically right there is like, well, then I definitely don't need Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that, that people don't think they need Jesus because what? I'm good to go. It's still very prevalent in our culture, very prevalent in our culture, and in our city, maybe bigger than anywhere. I'm baptized. I'm good to go. That's huge. That's not a 10-year-ago thing, 20-year-ago thing. That's still prevalent today. I've got to get my child baptized. They're good to go. Or, oh, I was baptized. I'm good to go. That's, that's all over the place. Religiosity is alive and well in our culture. So people don't believe they need Jesus, aren't thinking about Jesus, have a view that God says you're good to go. So therefore, then what Jesus becomes is this, is an option for more religious type people that want to get more serious about it. If you want to get more serious about it, Jesus is a good option, but is not necessary. So that's just some thoughts on why it's so hard to talk to someone about, uh, about Jesus Christ. Why, why does it seem like some non-believers face difficulty in their lives better than Christians do? Is this a false hope? Why does it seem like some non-believers face difficulty in their lives better than Christians do? Is this a false hope? 
have not thought about that before. Christians, let's start here. Christians have had a difficult time facing difficulty for a variety of reasons. Number one is this, is that we're undisciplined. And so we're not practicing the spiritual habits or the spiritual disciplines. Something bad happens and we're kind of like, I'm not, I don't understand why I'm not spiritually strong in the middle of this. Let me give you a couple of examples. Number one is just straight Bible reading. The numbers on reading the Bible among Christians are dismal, absolutely dismal, the number of Bible reading. There's devotion books galore. Don't mistake devotional reading for Bible reading. There's very little Bible reading in our culture. So therefore, when there's very little Bible reading in our culture, there's very little understanding of God's vision, of God's promises saturating our lives. So therefore, when something bad happens, when that bad thing happens, it's less likely that I'm going to start to pick up a Bible because I didn't have the habit in the first place. But if I have the habit in the first place, I'm ready when the bad thing comes. So Christians aren't facing bad things in a healthy way because Christians aren't functioning as Christians. That sounds extremely judgmental to say. It doesn't mean they're not saved, not going to heaven, but they're not functioning. They're not living out their understanding. They're not living out their faith at that time. That's a reality for a lot of people. So Bible reading, number one. Number two, and hopefully you've heard these two before in this room, is friendship and relationship. Lone Ranger Christianity is alive and well in our culture. The depth of friendships in our lives is just pitiful. Very few people have close friends. You're up here, you're, you're, let's call this one pastor describes it kind of as level one. You're at the top of the soil. How about that Vikings-Packers game today? What did you think of the weather this last week? Okay, is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you stay there at that level, guess what? There's no root. There's no depth at all to help and walk with one another through something. In the midst of tragedy is not the time to form relationships because you're struggling. So again, you've got to be in community, functioning in friendship and relationship so you have people around you and you're going through it. Non-believers in different moments have what? They've got deeper friendships. So they can sometimes face tragedy better because they've got other people around them. But another reason that non-believers can have easier time through hardship than believers is because non-believers are not disappointed or struggling with God through that. So this is going to sound really weird and be like, why are you making an argument for being a non-believer? So if you're a non-believer and you're going through a difficult time, you take away a whole layer of what? Doubt about God, frustration with God, or disappointment with the vision that you thought God had for your life. So you remove all of that. Three of the big things that cause challenge for believers when they're going through hardship. Well, it goes back to, did the believers have reality in all of these areas? So, for example, in our story from Matthew 7 this morning, the wise builder and the foolish builder, this is important to catch about this story, both of them build their house, right? Both, and Jesus says one's practicing one way, one's practicing the other way. The thing to catch is what? Both face the storm. The exact same storm. So think of it this way. Practicing the ways of God. Do not remove the storm, but per 
just from the storm, in the storm. Practicing the ways of God do not remove the storm, but protect us in the midst of the storm. Many Christians have the perspective that I'm following God, why is this happening to me? And so that automatically is going to create difficulty in the midst of hardship. The reality is this. Christians are actually going to have it worse than non-Christians. Because you've just got the general brokenness of the world, which every humanity, human being has. But on top of that, which non-believers don't have, is we have the promised persecution from Satan and from other people. Satan's not touching unbelievers. He doesn't care. He's got them right where he wants them. And so again, from the Bible's perspective, we've got two major things going against us. I might go off on a rabbit trail here a little bit. But non-believers are sometimes going to have the appearance as though they're facing something stronger than Christians. And hopefully some of those reasons made sense that I, that I went. Any of that makes sense that I just got done talking? Okay, some of you are like, hurry. It's not saying this is the last question because of it, but we will end on this question. I've just been working through them here. How do I accept a family member who is living the homosexual lifestyle? Is it true that if we don't live with total abandon to Jesus, he will reject us in the end? Let's deal first with the, how do I accept a family member who is living the homosexual life, lifestyle? I, I, I don't want to nit, nitpick, but I, as Christians, to give us comfort and confidence, we do have to be really clear on our understanding, and that's that can be really hard to hear. God doesn't... Um, careful, I say this. You're not supposed to accept them. God wants you to love them. And there's a, there's a big difference not just nitpicking between between words. Um, that, that's number one, and along with that, in the exact same breath is this. No matter what you do, this is really hard. No matter what you do, you are going to be perceived by that person in that setting as unloving and unaccepting. Let me unpack this a, just a little bit. Homosexuality is a really difficult topic in our in our in our culture, and uh, let me be very clear about this. I personally am just as guilty as any active homosexual in our community. That my greed, my lust, is absolutely no worse than their inclination to act on, on the feelings that that they have. Where there's a big difference is this. I don't always do this, but hopefully by the grace of God, I acknowledge and I seek to turn from that lust in my life or that greed in my life. That I don't say it's okay, but rather I seek to turn from it. What's happened is in, in this issue specifically has been um, it's, it's okay, so I don't have to turn from it. That's going to that's gonna happen. And then what's happened is this, is our identity is so wrapped up in our sexuality in our culture. Sex is a big deal in our society. 
Don't, don't take my word for it. Look at almost every billboard on your way home today. How are they selling eyeglasses right now? By sex. They're not putting me on a billboard selling eyeglasses. Hopefully that gets the message across of what I'm trying to say. Right? It's a big deal. So what I want to do is I really want to give you something practical on this. I'm not sure if I'm really helping. There's a saying in Christianity about love the sinner, hate the sin. I want to encourage us to set that aside. There's, there's truth to it and in it, but in this specific instance, it's really unhelpful. Because the person who's living or experiencing the homosexual lifestyle, there's no separation between the two. So I can't say to them, I, I, I hate your lifestyle, but I love you. It's so ingrained in who they are. Where in a different setting, I can easily separate my lying from who I am. If you come up to me and say, really don't appreciate the way you lie, that's easy for me to separate because I don't think of myself as a liar. don't say this in the positive or negative, I just say in many of those instances, people people among us, people around us see themselves as a homosexual. And so to say you hate the sin and love the sinner, it does not, it just, it doesn't work, very practically speaking. And, and guess what? You're not being unfaithful to Jesus by setting that saying aside. So let me bring it back here, I'm not even sure if I'm helping, I'm just going in circles. If you have a family member right now, let's get right where the rubber meets the road. Family member or a friend who's actively engaged in a sexual lifestyle outside of the desire of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and as revealed in the written word. Let me encourage you a couple of things. First is this. Be crystal clear. Be crystal clear with them. In the right setting, in the right place. What I mean by that is this. You meet with them and you just say, I would like an opportunity, you know that I care for you, you know that I love you, I'd like to express to you my understanding of what the Bible teaches. It's not going to go well, I'll tell you right now, it's not going to go well. Okay, but be crystal clear about it. And after being crystal clear about it, be crystal clear about this. I'm going to love you. You're not my enemy. I'm going to love you. If you need water to drink, I'm going to get you water to drink. If you need clothing, I'm going to get you clothing. But I cannot participate in anything that's going to promote this continuing on. And it gets really muddy and murky after that. And there's all sorts of practical things that you've got to deal with after that. We can't get into every practical situation. But be crystal clear. Number one, be crystal clear. Number two, and this is difficult, but some I know need to hear this, especially for your children, and it breaks my own heart. Some of your children who are in the midst of this situation, maybe not a homosexual lifestyle, but, but living, with, living with someone before marriage. I mean, let's put that on the table. That's a big issue, a huge issue in our culture. Big issue across the board. I, I wrestle with this every single week. I'm dealing with this in different ways. There's not, there's not perfect clarity on everything. But let me encourage you on something. You've got to discern whether that's the issue or not. So this is very controversial. If they're not a Christian, don't start with them. It's not the issue. You shouldn't be surprised at all. 
that non-Christians are living together. That's, that's normal operating procedure. It flows from a heart that hasn't been regenerated. And I know, I, listen how I say this, I know it's really hard to hear that your son or your daughter's heart may not be regenerated. The reality of what the scripture is saying. And so maybe the place to begin is not, you know what, I would encourage you to do this, very practically speaking, then I'll wrap this up. If your son or your daughter or a family member is in that, and you know they're not functioning in the Christian world, they're not actively engaged in a church, they're not, they don't love Jesus. Let's just be very frank about it. Don't say anything about the homosexuality or the living together. I would encourage you, don't say anything at all. Just love on them. Just tell them about the person of Jesus Christ. And that, that's it. And guess what? You keep telling them about Jesus, it's going to come to that point at some time. So when you're traveling there, I'd encourage you to do this. Look for a church in advance and say, hey, we're going to go to church. You want to join us on Sunday morning? If they say no, well, you just say, hey, that's fine. Where can we meet you for lunch afterwards? But let me tell you this. Be firm on this. You do not skip church because your relatives are skipping church or it's going to be uncomfortable. You know what kind of message that gives? Even if you have relatives coming to visit you here, I'm not doing this because I want church attendance to go up. You got relatives coming to visit here. You're not like, get up, we're going to church at 9.45, be ready to go. Hey, we're going to be heading off to our worship service at 9.45, we'd love for you to join us. Well, hey, sleep in, that's just fine. We'll pick you up right when we get done, and we'll go out for lunch. That's just fine. Don't freak out. Also, don't miss out. Because we're not being a very good witness of where God lands in the priority list. That no matter how they respond or where they go, God comes first. So we're a little off tangent here on that. I hope some of that's helpful a little bit. But let me encourage you. Love on them. In the midst of loving on them, it's going to get difficult and it's going to get really, really messy. Let's finish with this final thought. We could look at every question that came in today probably and there's just difficulty to it. There's uncertainty. Even to this question, there's uncertainty of how to handle certain situations. When Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he basically says, hey, do these things that I have told you. There's a lot of unclarity in our world. But at the exact same time, there's a lot of clarity. And so here's what Jesus is asking us to do. Practice the things that he's made known. Some of us are so busy worrying about situation Y or X. It's kind of like, you know what? Maybe I should just know what I know what to do. And then in this realm, I'm going to take a step of faith. And God's going to honor that. It's not like God is up there going, oh, he chose wrong there, buddy. No. So let's finish with this thought. What God has made known, let it be said of us that we practiced and we practiced well. And so God has made known for you and I to share a cup of water, even with our enemies. God has made it known that you and I, from our perspective, would speak truth. So let's do what God has made known and clear to us. I hope this morning's been somewhat helpful as we've wrestled with different issues and thoughts. And I want to continue the conversation. So if I didn't get to your question, I'll get to it in different ways and in, and in different means. But know this as well. For each question that was submitted, there's probably five to ten of you that could have asked the same question, maybe in a little different way. So let me finish with this. You're in a community group for a reason. 
anything that you ask me this morning should be free game to ask in your community group. And all community group leaders just quit, I know. <laughs> this is why you're in a community group, is to ask it in that setting and to converse about it. And guess what? Your community group leader might not have the answer, and it's okay. They've been trained to say this. Let me think about it, and let's come back next week and talk after I've had some time to look further at God's, God's word. So let's continue the conversation together for the glory of God. Let us pray. Gracious and everlasting God, thank you. Lord, I take anything out of anyone's mind this morning, God, that I said that was complete personal opinion. Take anything out of anyone's mind this morning that I spoke that was off the cuff. But ingrain in our minds right now, God, where your spirit spoke it. Burn it into our hearts and into our minds. And I pray now in the coming weeks that you would help us to continue the conversation with one another in our community group, online, or wherever that may be. We ask, God, that you would continue to work among us and through us. Help us to be faithful to you above all else. In Jesus' name.